So what would you say if I told you that none other than Donald J. Trump, President of the United States, has shown me an absolutely positively 100% foolproof way for the Libertarian Party to take the presidency in an absolute clean sweep in 2024? I'd say, come again? And then I'd laugh because I said, come. But thank God that's not the case, huh? Well, not so sure about that. We'll have to uh, see how today goes. Hey, greetings, and welcome back once again to Categorical Imperatives. As always, I am your host, Lockheed Liberal, and I do want to thank you all so much for being here with me today. Now, if you are new to the program, I want to welcome you. This is a podcast where we are going to be using uh, legal theory and moral philosophy to discuss current events related to law, politics, and culture. And today, uh, I'm coming at you guys with another episode, uh, like I've been doing lately, where this is just a really freeform episode. Uh, I don't have a script written out for you guys. Uh, I've got a couple clips of things I want to play. I have an article I want to read for you guys. Uh, It's just, I've been having so much fun watching uh, this election. It's just been amazing. I, I mean, I... I couldn't have asked for like a better Christmas gift if I wanted to than to just watch the way everyone is losing their fucking mind and it's fucking hilarious to be honest. So, um, yeah. Um, so for those of you out there who, uh, uh, maybe are new to the program or you just haven't heard me mention this, I don't talk about this a whole lot. I am a libertarian. Um, and so I, uh, you know, I've I become very excited because I realized that, uh, you know, if, if President Trump wins re-election with this ridiculous scheme that he has going on, that it's an absolute guaranteed way for me and uh, my Libertarian Party to win the presidency in 2024. It turns out that uh, all we have to do is, after the election happens and after everyone casts their votes... And after the electoral college meets and they cast their votes, and after the state electors uh, or the state legislatures certify those electors and send them off uh, to Congress to be certified, uh, like they are going to be doing with the 2020 uh, electoral votes today, somewhere between the uh, state certifying them and the people in Congress counting them, all I have to do is get together 537 other fellow libertarians and myself. And all we have to do is each one of us will write down on a little piece of paper uh, whoever the libertarians choose for their presidential candidate in 2024. And then we send it off to Congress and we just say that this is an alternate slate of electors. And the next thing you know, we have an absolute clean sweep to victory. It'll be the first completely uh, unanimous race in presidential history since George Washington. That'll be pretty exciting, huh? Talk about a mandate. Um, obviously, that's ridiculous. Um, so, uh, we are... I've got a, an article here for you uh, from Rob Nadelson I'm going to be going over in a little bit. And then I've got an article I wrote uh, for uh, a legal blog uh, I'm going to be uh, kind of going over with you as well. 
but before we do that, I wanted to have a little bit of fun. So if you guys saw the last episode, you saw I featured uh, a couple of videos by uh, a guy named Doug Tenapple, and I had so much fun watching his videos uh, here and commenting on them with you guys. I thought I would do that again just to kind of kick things off with a, uh, a, a fun, uh, I, don't, I don't know, just lighthearted sort of way to start the show. So, Doug, take it away. Trump says Pence has the power to reject the chosen electors. It's all in Pence's hands. I'm Doug Tenable in exile. Like, subscribe, and comment below. Here's, uh, we're at the Epic Times. Hours after Pence spoke, Trump told Georgia voters, I hope Mike Pence comes through for us. I have to tell you, I hope that our great vice president our great vice president comes through for us. He's a great guy, Trump said without elaborating. Of course, if he doesn't come through, I won't like him as much. I admire that Trump keeps a sense of humor about this. I think we have to keep a sense of humor about some of the absurdity of life and how we got here. But I think hidden in this article is a clue as to what Pence is going to do. This is going to be the safest tactic. It's now been said by both Pence and Trump. So let me read this again to you from the Epic Times. <laughs> White House advisor Peter Navarro also asserted that Pence can delay the joint session process and provide a 10-day audit for the election results. That would mean they don't decide it Wednesday at 1 o'clock. It means they'll, they'll take a 10-day time to open up an investigation. I don't know. That sounds iffy to me, although a lot of people are saying that's possible. But look at this. So here's the, the Pence spokesman, right? This guy speaks on behalf of Pence. He doesn't say anything without Pence's permission. Pence spokesman Mark Short dismissed the claim by Navarro about the 10-day audit. Peter Navarro is many things, he told the Wall Street Journal on Tuesday. He's not a constitutional scholar. So what is Pence going to do? I think he's already told us. And I think it wasn't just spoken by him, but the president. Let's oh go goodness. to Just the News. Here's Jenna Ellis. Trump lawyers suggest Pence could defer certifying elections, send requests to state legislatures. That's what they're going to do. Let's hear her on this one. What uh, Mike Pence could do and uh, what he should do, in fact, is to direct a question back to the state legislatures when there are two competing slates of delegates from these six states. He can ask that question to the states and say, uh, well, state legislatures, you know, I, I have an oath to the Constitution to uphold um, the Constitution as written. And Article 2, Section 1.2 says that the state legislatures direct the manner in which electoral delegates are selected. So you tell me which of these two slates was selected in the manner that your state uh, General Assembly has designated. And that's a fair question. That's not extra. <laughs> Oh, Jesus Christ. Okay. ...in discretion. That's not setting up um, any sort of bad precedent. That's actually returning <laughs> authority to the constitutionally vested uh, entity. And to simply direct that question, I think, would then uh, require a response from these very 
uh, timid, <laughs> to put it lightly, state <laughs> legislatures that haven't been willing to act. And it would, in fact, then give a very clean outcome uh, to the selection. It wouldn't be political. It would just so, be saying, you're the constitutional investor authority. You tell me. So you never do something risky and crazy when something much more moderate could also could still do the trick. All these guys are looking around. They don't want to destroy their career. Um, they don't want to put their neck on the line too far out for America. Why get your head chopped off when you could just lose a finger? So here's how it would work out. <clears throat> and I think they've already telegraphed this is exactly what they're going to try to do. Um, because this has been both flown up by, uh, approved by, Pen by Pence's guy and uh, underlined by Trump. Notice Trump's not saying what Gomer said. You know, just to read the alternate electors. This is what's going to happen. He's going to open the votes to the six states. And instead of a direct question to the legislatures asking uh, him to confirm which of the two slates of electors to go with. Because he can't he, do that. He, uh, he, under, he um, references he Article 2, Section 1.2. And he, and he says, I, I'm going to push this back back on the states and tell them which of these two were conducted in the right manner. So he does have coverage under 1877 by pushing it back to the states. See, he still has the 12th Amendment in his back pocket if he had plenary power. But why use that? The historicis or the, the, the practice law has been um, the 1877 which is that he's just there to certify. So he's pushing it back to states. He's going to give the states a second chance on the electors. <laughs> he's going to go back to the state and say, which of these two? So, and then the Republicans will, will win most of those swing states <laughs> if they do a simple majority. So that takes it out of the hands of the House and Senate which they shouldn't be the deciding body. He's going to push it back and let them decide. That's what I assume. Um, they could probably all fly home, meet in about two, two and a half days, according to Jenna Ellis. So notice what this does. This can't be contested because Pence is not exercising discretion. He's putting it back. No, He's not really? going to create a That's new not what he's precedent. Doing? He's putting it back on the legislature where it belongs. So he can claim to be traditional, yet challenge the vote. <laughs> That's my guess of what he's going to do. But man, this whole thing pivots on Pence. I believe he's a good man. I believe he loves this country more than his job. And I think he's going to do what's right. To answer your oh question, in the final analysis, it is up to Pence to decide whether he's going to go down as the most inconsequential vice president in the history of in the 244 year history of this nation, or if, if he's going to go down as the, the most consequential oh and the most God. revered vice president that this country has ever seen. <laughs> the, the fate of this country is in his hands. I'm Doug Tenaple in exile. Oh, wow. Okay. That was fun. That was fun. So, um, here's the problem with that. Is that once the Electoral College has met and every state's election has been certified, 
there is no constitutional provision for an alternate slate of electors. A group of people who gather in a room and claim they are electors as a state party backed Republican uh, cabal did in a couple of these states, it has no more authority than the people listening to me right now deciding they too want to become members of the Electoral College. And that's why I say this is a guaranteed path to the Libertarian Party for victory. I'm very excited for this because all I have to do is get together with 537 other Libertarians plus myself. That makes 538. That gives us a chance to all write down the Libertarian Party candidate, send those pieces of paper off to Congress, tell them their electoral votes, and boom, we win. That easy. That, yeah. And it just... You know, I... For a long time... um. I have had been of the opinion um, that uh, the constitutional conservatives out there who uh, supported Trump were, um, you know, maybe a, a little mixed up or, or wrong, or they were kind of caught up in populism, but they were still constitutional conservatives, and they really still cared about the Constitution. Maybe we just disagreed on some things. No, that's not the case anymore. That's absolutely not the case. People who are pushing shit like this— and this is unfortunate. This is coming from a lot of people who I once really, really respected a lot. Uh, and, and even Doug, Doug Tineville, he is a guy who I used to uh, respect. Uh, and there's a lot of other ones, too. I mean, you see guys like uh, uh, Bill Whittle just losing his fucking mind. Uh, a lot of people out there are just going absolutely fucking nuts with this shit. And it's really sad. So... Yeah, you know, essentially, so you have these Republicans, just these random Republicans who aren't electors uh, in the states of Georgia, Pennsylvania, uh, Wisconsin, Nevada, and Michigan, uh, who essentially follow the White House's lead uh, and making uh, or discussing moves to form their own competing slates of pro-Trump electors. It was really uh, a theoretical effort with no legal pathway. Electoral college slates are tied to the winner uh, of the popular vote. Now, there is a plenary power, and this is what, what these guys don't get, is there is a plenary power, and the plenary power lies with the state legislatures. And we went through this in my last video, and I showed you guys this. Uh, I showed you that the very section of the law that they keep quoting, that they keep calling a plenary power, says it is a plenary power of the state legislature. And people like Doug Tappel or like Louis Gomer are reading that and saying it's the plenary power of the state legislature and, and then saying it's the plenary power of the vice president. They're, they're just they're putting words in there. They're just making shit up. It's these people are completely disconnected from reality. And it's if I thought they had any chance of winning, I'd be very, very concerned. But I know they don't. And so it's very, very funny. Um. Uh, but yeah, really, uh, it's just the most the Republicans can do is try and claim some stupid symbolic moment, uh, saying that the people uh, who showed up would have been slates of electors had President Trump won those states. But since he lost them, and numerous state and federal courts have rejected his claims, and since the state legislatures in those states have rejected their claims uh, as just being entirely 
meritless. What they are attempting here is voter fraud. This is fraud. And and this is the thing is, uh, and I, I got to say, I had someone uh, who watched my last video uh, and he left me a comment uh, saying that, uh, you know, I was roping in a lot of the uh, uh, sort of like the, the QAnon nuts with the people out there who just simply recognized that there was fraud in this election. And, and that was a fair point. That's, that's not what I was meaning to do, but there was a fair point to be made there. And these are two different groups of people. And I want to be clear about this. I'm not, uh, I'm not blasting absolutely anyone who necessarily just supported Trump or uh, who thinks there's fraud. Look, I, I think there is compelling evidence of some measure of fraud. I, I don't think it's nearly enough that it could be an election swinger. Uh, but and I'm not even a Trump supporter. I, I I can't stand the guy. I um. But even I, you know, there is some evidence of some fraud, and there is some evidence of uh, irregularities and anomalies. And there, you know, these things could have been investigated if they were done in a better way. But that's the problem: is they didn't choose to do it in any logical way. They just choose to do it like this. And I mean. Trump is just basically going out like a bitch. I mean, he's just going out like a straight bitch. I mean, he's doing exactly what Hillary Clinton did in 2016, which is he's just uh, pretending he didn't lose and blaming absolutely everybody except himself for his loss. It's awful. It's it's just really sad. Um, so I, I want to go here now to uh, an article from uh, Rob Nadelson. Uh, that is really interesting and I think gives a really good perspective. Ron Madelson, if you guys don't know, he is a uh, uh, constitutional uh, law scholar. Uh, he writes a lot for the 10th Amendment Center, and that is where I uh, got this article from. And there we go. So... This is from the Tenth Amendment Center. I thought this was a great article. I just wanted to read this uh, through this with you guys. Uh, it says, "Sorry, Vice President Pence can't replace electors on his own." And he says, as he pointed out in a recent interview, the failure of the Trump legal team and its allies to understand the Constitution's rules on presidential elections has cost them dearly. They have evidence of fraud and other election irregularities, but they have not used this evidence well. The Constitution says that the vice president, as president of the Senate, is the presiding officer when a joint session of Congress oversees the counting of presidential electors. Some of the president's advocates claim uh, that gives Vice President Mike Pence unlimited discretion over counting. They say that when in joint session uh, on January 6th, Pence may unilaterally decide between rival slates of electors. In pursuance of this theory, Rep uh, Representative Louis Gohmert uh, from Texas has sued the vice president. Gohmert asserts that the federal uh, laws on election counting are unconstitutional because they are inconsistent with the 12th Amendment. He claims the vice president may exercise the exclusive authority and sole discretion in determining which electoral votes count for a given state. He argues that Pence should appoint a Republican slate for Arizona. The trial and appeals courts have dismissed the case for lack of standing, but if the plaintiffs had standing, their case 
still would be very weak. And here is why, he says. Point one, as the vice president observes, he's not a proper defendant. He has done nothing wrong. Nothing makes him the bad guy here. Point two, the Gomert complaint points out that state legislatures can choose electors, but it fails to mention that the constitutionally authorized deadline for doing so was December 14th, passed without the Arizona legislature reversing the uh, results certified under procedures fixed by the legislature. Instead, the complaint says that members of the Arizona legislature selected the GOP slate, but it failed to mention that these members only made up a minority of the legislature who were acting on their own. It is highly unlikely the 12th Amendment would give one person uncontrolled discretion over the presidential and vice presidential electoral counting, and this is particularly so when that person is the vice president, someone who may be, uh, as in this election, one of the candidates himself. A legal principle uh, says that when a result seems unlikely, you don't assume it is correct unless the law governing compels it. And this is something that is known as absurdity doctrine in law. And so uh, he goes on to say uh, the 12th Amendment does not clearly determine that the vice president has exclusive authority to count the ballots. Quite the contrary. It says that the president of the Senate shall, in the presence of the Senate and House of Representatives, open all the certificates and the votes shall then be counted It. Go, uh, excuse me, it gives the vice president authority to open ballots, but not to specify who counts them. And when the Constitution or law is silent, normal parliamentary procedure uh, is to proceed according to the rules specified by the parliamentary body. That means rules adopted by the joint session of Congress, not the presiding officer. Now, Congress has set forth those rules in federal statutes. The plaintiffs claim these statutes, but they which they wrongly uh, attribute to a single enactment, are unconstitutional. However, once again, their lack of constitutional understanding caused them to lose an opportunity. The statute is not unconstitutional because it contradicts the Twelfth Amendment, because it doesn't. The statute may be unconstitutional because it intrudes on a federal function. To explain, when Congress comes into joint counting session, it is not acting as the federal legislature. It is acting as an assembly exercising a function directly mandated by the Constitution. Federal functions usually are exempt from statutory regulation. On the other hand, the joint session may, expressly or uh, impliedly, agree voluntarily to follow these statutory procedures if the joint session does not object to using established legal procedures then it is uh, deemed to accept them this comes from a case known as Dyer v Blair but that is surely the joint session's decision not the decision of the presiding officer All right, now I've got uh, 
an article here that uh, I wrote that I want to read for you guys. Uh, and I will uh, have it down in the uh, uh, video description for this uh, uh, for this episode. I'll have a link to my article. I'm, I'll, I'll also have a link to the article from uh, uh, Rod Madelson, excuse me, from Rod Madelson that I just read for you guys. Uh, and then in my article, I have a lot of links throughout it to um, uh, various statutes uh, or court decisions or things that I have quoted in here. Uh, now, I just, I, I didn't really have time to cut those all out and, and paste them up on the screen for you guys and show you what the law says word for word as I'm uh, reading it. I just kind of wanted to get this done and get this out to you guys. Um, so what I will be doing is I will be uh, posting a link to uh, the article. And in the article, obviously, uh, the places where I mention these things, you can find them linked through the article. Or I'll also just post uh, uh, down in the description uh, links directly to those sections of law that I'm going to be mentioning so you can just go and pull them up directly from down here, uh, from down in the uh, video description for yourself, uh, if you would like to. So, it starts out saying that on January 6th, the Vice President, in his constitutional role as President of the Senate and Member of Congress, will gather together in the Capitol building, uh, and to do his constitutional duty. <laughs> duty. We have now reached the final step in the constitutional process of selecting a president. The presidential electors have already met and voted in their respective states. They have made a record of their votes and they have sealed, certified, and transmitted those votes to the President of the U.S. Senate, as the Constitution requires. The President of the Senate shall, in the presence of the Senate uh, and the House of Representatives, open all certificates, and the votes shall be counted. The solemn ceremony has been conducted for more than 200 years, and it should be a celebration of American democracy, and of the peaceful transfer of power. In 2021, this moment will instead be marred uh, by farcile and ominous tones. Of course, Representative, uh, Republican Representative Louis Gohmert has indicated that he will object from the floor to the counting of the electoral ballots in several battleground states, and he won't be alone. What at first seemed like an eccentric grandstanding will now reportedly be joined by more than 100 Republican colleagues. And not to be outdone, Republican senators uh, and likely uh, presidential aspirant Josh Hawley announced that he too would object from the Senate side, and now at least 11 Republican state colleagues are likely to join him. Now, this won't change the end result. There's no way this will. It just it simply won't. Uh, but by the end of the day, on January 6th, the Democratic candidate Joe Biden will still formally be declared the president-elect. So, what will happen as a result of this grandstanding? Well, under existing statutes, the objections raised from both the House and the Senate will trigger a debate in each chamber and the majority vote in each chamber as to whether or not to sustain the objection of the counting of any particular state's electoral ballots. If even one chamber votes to overrule the objection, 
as the Democratic-controlled House will undoubtedly do, then the count will continue. The recognition of Biden's electoral victory will be delayed, but it is inevitable. The counting of the electoral votes in Congress has not quite been reduced to the same kind of mechanical process uh, of which the casting of electoral votes at the meeting of the Electoral College has been uh, for almost the entire history of the country. The public has expected presidential electors to faithfully and without thought cast an official ballot for the candidate to whom they are pledged. Being a presidential elector is an honorary and ceremonial role and nothing more. Members of Congress, of course, are elected and exercise more discretion and responsibility. It's not hard to make the case that Congress ought to also pay uh, to play a merely ceremonial role. Breaking from the ceremony would be extraordinary and might be justifiable in extreme circumstances. We are not in those kinds of extreme circumstances. Congress itself has taken the view embodied in the Electoral Count Act of 1887 uh, that there are circumstances in which Congress must deliberate on whether to count electoral ballots. That power can obviously be abused, and Congress has tried to create high barriers to exercising it in the decades of disuse, uh, and it should, that should suggest strong norms against invoking it. Congress has indicated that uh, in the states themselves, the election controversies should be resolved. And that's, they have been actually, they, they have been. And that's what happens when the state legislatures certify the votes of the electors and send them off. That is what has happened is these controversies have been resolved. And uh, as I've talked about in other past videos too, uh, there are uh, in every state, uh, if there is a conflict uh, in uh, the state legislature or there is uncertainty in the winter or there's uh, suspected fraud or anything like that, there are rules set in place uh, to make the state courts the proper place to adjudicate the matter. So essentially, in the presidential election of 1876, uh, posed a problem that eventually gave rise to this 1887 statute. In the midst of widespread and bipartisan accusations of election fraud, Four states had disputed slates of electors of had disputed slates of presidential electors as the date approached for Congress to count the votes. The congressionally created Electoral Commission of 1876 was an ad hoc solution to that particular problem, and no one wanted it to be repeated. Other, more permanent changes arose as a result of the chaos. Congress tried to anticipate the possibility of election disputes that might drag out for weeks again. It created a safe harbor provision that set up a default acceptance of electoral votes when election disputes were resolved by the procedures laid down uh, by the states at least six days before the electors voted. And those are the statutes that I was just talking about a second ago that the states have put in place. It specifies that the ballot certificate of electoral vote shall include the official list of electors certified by the governor uh, in the case of objections on the floor of Congress. Even when there are purported alternative slates of electors, the votes of the presidential electors certified by state executives in line with the safe harbor provision are in a privileged position to be counted. Now, we can explain the general principle 
of putting legislatures in charge of election dispute resolutions. At the time that the founders were drafting the Constitution, uh, and through most of the 19th century, the most natural assumption was that the democratically elected legislatures would be the most trusted body for resolving election disputes. When there were contests over whether a member of Congress had been duly elected, it was the legislative chamber to which that member had been elected that would determine the electoral winner and seat that person. It was Congress where the votes of presidential electors would have been opened and counted, but this logic fell apart as politics changed with the emergence of political parties. Having legislatures resolve election disputes began to make much less sense. It was increasingly obvious that the partisan legislative majority would be sitting as a judge in its own case. The majority would not simply be determining the fate of an individual politician, it would potentially be determining the immediate political fortunes of the party itself. Now, it seems unlikely that we would design the Constitution the same way today. The country has worked around it by relying on courts to arbitrate election disputes. Uh, in the Electoral Count Act, Congress uh, itself suggested the states might use judicial or other methods or procedures to resolve controversies over the election of presidential electors, and states have generally followed through by adopting statutes to feature courts as the ultimate vehicle for resolving such controversies. It is not impossible that Congress might one day be forced to confront cases of disputed electoral votes in which the dispute had not been formally resolved through state procedures, but such a possibility is exceedingly unlikely. The 2020 presidential election does not come close to creating such a situation in which Congress has a legitimate reason or need to deliberate on whether to count the electoral votes. Gobert, who has advocated the view that the vice president could unilaterally set aside election votes, has baselessly asserted that rampant fraud and unconstitutional actions have stolen this election, and that multiple states have sent dueling slates of electors to Congress. Hawley has suggested more of a protest vote by which he would raise the fact that some states fail to follow their own election laws, and that, as he put it, mega corporations have effectively supported Biden. A group of Republican senators led by Ted Cruz has asserted that in light of unprecedented allegations of voter fraud, Congress should consider the forced resolution of those claims. Now, every bit of this is the flimsiest of fig leaves for continuing President Trump's efforts to overturn the results of the election. The unprecedented allegations of voter fraud and violations of state election laws uh, that underlie Gomert's objections uh, to the electoral votes are entirely imaginary. The allegations are unprecedented to the extent that they are fictional, and yet the Oval Office itself has persisted in shamelessly promoting them. Far from being ignored, the Trump campaign has been given ample opportunity to prosecute such claims before election officials and state and federal courts. Campaign officials have been singularly ineffective in marshalling credible evidence of any significant irregularities, and certainly of no irregularities that would alter the presidential election outcome in any state, let alone the election as a whole. 
Now, this campaign has lost an unprecedented number of lawsuits filed to uh, challenge the election results uh, for federal legislatures to lend credence to such claims by using them as a basis for objecting to electoral votes would be to simply feed rather than dispel partisan doubts about the legitimacy of the election. For federal legislatures, the use of such baseless allegations as the grounds for throwing out electoral votes would be to announce that Congress can simply change the outcomes of a presidential election the majority of the legislatures do not like. The premise of the objections to electoral votes is that there are alternative elector slates for multiple states that need to be evaluated. This is entirely false, though. No state has sent more than one list of certified presidential electors to Congress. The election of presidential electors was certified by state officials in every state uh, by the statutorily designated safe harbor date. The state governor certified in each state only one list of presidential electors. Only one slate of, uh, or excuse me, yeah, only one slate of presidential electors met in each state to cast ballots in accordance with state laws and affix the official certification from the governor in accordance with the federal law. In some states, rogue groups of Republican politicians have encouraged a false slate of Republican electors to cast a ballot, but these electors were neither chosen in a manner directed by the state legislature nor even appointed directly by a vote of the majority of the state legislature. In no state did the state legislature take a formal vote to set aside the apparent results of the election and designate a pro-Trump slate of electors to act on the state's behalf. If Congress were to give credence to such shams, then there is nothing stopping bad faith activist groups in every future election from simply sending to Congress votes of a multitude of presidential electors and letting Congress choose whichever it prefers. Now, it is not hard to imagine the grounds of state capitals on the day of electoral voting crowded with gaggles of electors enjoying no basis of legitimacy except for their own assertions that they represent the true will of the people of their respective states. And what Louis Gomer has proposed is the most radical remedy of simply having the vice president count the electoral ballots that he feels like counting and ignoring the ones he does not. Procedurally, the proposal is not in keeping with the details of the 12th Amendment, which specifies that the vice president shall open all certificates and the votes shall then be counted. The vice president is only given the job of opening certificates and the directive is mandatory that he will open them and that the votes therein will be counted. The proposal is inconsistent with federal statute, which fleshes out the 12th Amendment's directive that the votes shall be counted by specifying that tellers appointed by each chamber will do the actual counting of the electoral votes and will report the count to the vice president, who shall simply announce the results. The Electoral Count Act is surely not the only way to realize the 12th Amendment's directive, but it is, to this degree, fully consistent with the constitutional text. Uh, substantively, the idea that the vice president has complete discretion over whether or not to count electoral votes is wildly inconsistent with our entire history 
of constitutional practice, and it would make a mockery of democratic ideals to give a potential candidate in the election the discretionary authority to determine who won the election. The remedies proposed by Holly and by Cruz are hardly better. They posit a world in which a majority of the members of Congress could simply choose to ignore election results because they do not like them and to throw out the vote for the opposite party. If Congress can ignore all evidence because a sitting president and his supporters make unsubstantiated allegations of fraud in order to install that president in a second term, then we are uh, at best living in a parliamentary system rather than a system with an independently elected president. In this arrangement, rather than respecting the results of these state elections and the determination of the duly elected state officials, the majority of the national legislature could ignore uh, inconvenient results from the Electoral College. A majority of the members of Congress in 2016 could have determined that they would really prefer that the winner of the national popular vote be president, regardless of the electoral vote recorded in the states, or that they were sufficiently concerned about Trump's fitness for office or his relations uh, with Russia to deny his apparent victory. Their proposal unleashes Congress from the constitutional responsibility of formally recording the result of the vote of the Electoral College and empowers it to announce the president that it would prefer. The Constitution lays out procedure for Congress choosing the president and vice president when the Electoral College has failed to make a choice. The, propo the, uh, the proposal advanced by the Republican senators would have Congress choose the president even when the Electoral College, which is to say the American citizenry, uh, that voted for the president in November has made a choice. Even if the Republican legislators wanted some vehicle for seriously and honestly examining irregularities in the 2020 election and the proper conduct of elections in the future, objecting to the counting of electoral votes is hardly the proper way of doing so. Of course, there has already been ample opportunity for evaluating such claims, and they have been repeatedly and firmly rejected. Uh, by every forum that has heard them. At best, congressional rules provide for a brief window of debate on objections lodged by a member of the House and a member of the Senate to a particular state's purported electors. This is hardly a helpful process for accessing allegations of supposed massive voter fraud or proper electoral procedures. Congress has an established process for collecting and for evaluating evidence, members of the Republican-controlled Senate could have held investigative committee hearings at any time to take evidence regarding such claims and to consider legislative reform to ensure fair elections in the future. They could still uh, do so in the coming month if one really wanted to reassure members of the public that no stone had been left unturned uh, in the search for voting irregularities. Better mechanisms for doing so are available to members of Congress than issuing press releases, tweeting, and casting protest votes. But, perhaps, the objections of the counting of the electoral vote should simply be regarded as a meaningless political stunt. Members of Congress engage in such posturing all the time. 
they, they issue public statements that allow them to express sentiments popular with their constituents, but that they have no policy consequence. They take messaging votes on bills that they know have no chance of passage or that will be vetoed. They even cast votes on legislation that they fully expect will be struck down by the courts as unconstitutional. Legislators frequently posture in public without responsibility. Gobert, Holly, and Cruz and their objections will not be sustained by a majority in both chambers of Congress, and they know that. Despite their objections, all the votes will be counted and Biden will be declared the president. No harm, no foul, some might say. If one casts a vote to steal an election, but no one knows the vote will not carry the day, no one can really be said to be trying to steal the election. Um, but there is harm in such stunts. Really, the objections will strengthen rather than dissipate the groundless belief uh, of some partisans that Biden somehow stole the election, rather than countering the president's false claims that the election was stolen such maneuvers on the floor of Congress lend credence and allow them to fester and grow. Meanwhile, they further break down norms of constitutionally appropriate behavior so as to encourage future legislators to behave in a similarly irresponsible fashion. Can it be said that there is no harm if every presidential election season henceforth involves large numbers of legislators from the losing party taking every available step to prevent the recognition of the rightful electoral winner? And will there be harm when they attempt at some point succeeds and the loser is declared the winner and assumes the power of the presidency? But even as political messaging exercise, what exactly is the message they're going for here? Are these congressional Republicans telling voters that if they elect enough like-minded politicians, then a majority coalition would be willing and able to overturn the results of a presidential election? Is the message that every future presidential election is up for grabs when Congress meets to count the votes uh, and that election results could simply be contingent on who holds a majority in Congress? Now, this, to me, hardly seems like a message that any responsible politician should be sending in a constitutional republic, no democratic political system can function in this manner. It has now been revealed that the president even attempted to, uh, as we've seen, bully the governor of Georgia into changing the presidential vote count for no other reason than the president wanted it. It's really hard to imagine a more really flagrantly corrupt action on the part of a losing president short of simply attempting to bribe presidential electors or forcibly seizing ballots. If Republican legislators object to the counting of electoral votes for Biden, uh, it is this brazen effort to steal an election that will be assisting. They attempted, uh, their attempted uh, assistance might be uh, as practically futile as the president's phone call itself was. They might not actually succeed in stealing the election, but their objection to the counting of properly certified ballots can hardly be interpreted as anything other than a desire to do so.
Well, that was uh, pretty much all I had for you guys here today. Uh, I hope that you enjoy the show. Uh, and I, uh, as I mentioned in the last episode at the beginning, um, I'm going to be starting doing a lot more episodes like this where I'm going to be doing uh, either shorter episodes, shorter in duration. Uh, this one is turning out to be my usual kind of hour long, it looks like almost. Um, but uh, uh, either shorter in duration or like this where really I just kind of uh, found an interesting story. I, I threw together uh, some interesting pieces of information about it uh, and just kind of was able to put this together for you guys in an afternoon. Uh, so if you want uh, to have, if you have a question for me or you have an article you want me to go over or you maybe there's a like court case you want me to discuss or something like that uh, or just anything in the area of law or politics, uh, really, uh, then you can uh, either leave me a comment uh, down below in this video or I've also set up a uh, an email address uh, to receive uh, suggestions for future episodes. Uh, and that is categoricalimperatives at gmx.com. And I'm going to be trying to put these out as often as I can between doing uh, the big idea shows that I like to do. Uh, you know, right now I, I've got the one I'm working on where it's the, uh, the history of the first 10 amendments in the Bill of Rights. I put out part one a couple of weeks ago. I'm going to be putting out part two soon here. Um, but like I, I, I said, before in the past, those t those can take me as much as a month to put those ones together. So um, the more uh, you guys can uh, get me topics uh, or articles or ask me questions or things to discuss on the show, uh, really the more often I can be putting out content. So uh, yeah, just let me know uh, down below in the comments or send an email to categoricalimperatives at gmx.com and let me know if you have something you would like to hear me talk about. And uh, as always, uh, if you uh, like this, uh, take a moment and uh, smash that like button if you feel like it. Uh, subscribe to the channel if you will. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I don't put out videos on a, a set basis. I put them out when I have something to put out. So subscribe to the channel. Make sure that you are always informed when I have something new out. Uh, and uh, yeah, what I ask people to do also is if you liked uh, this episode, uh, just Take a minute and think of two people you know who you think would also like this episode or be interested in what they had to say, uh, and just just take a couple of moments and send them a link to the show, um, and just let them know they might want to check it out and watch it. Um, and if you guys would do that and help me grow the channel that way, I would really really appreciate it. Um, and if you hated the show, uh, go ahead and take a moment and think of uh, you know, two people who you know who you think might also hate the show. Um and send them a link to it and tell them to watch it because I'm a masochist and to be honest, your hate gets me off. So anyways, uh, until next time, uh, this has been uh, Categorical Imperatives. I have been Locking Liberal and as always, Delenda S. Carthago.